News Power Hour. Yeah, we got an hour of power coming up for you tonight. Magnus Haystack, in a story that has got the business community buzzing, he talks about a one trillion rand write-off on the property asset values. We'll be having an in-depth discussion with him, and then we'll be talking to Paul Hoffman from Accountability Now about whether Jacob Zuma will go to jail and what kind of a jail he'll go to. And then a, a, an astonishing story uh, from... The, the dean of the Desmond Tutu School for Leadership in White River in Mapumalanga, who has found himself on the wrong side of a fight with someone in the, the Mpumalanga Premier's office who actually had the 70-year-old thrown into a prison cell over a, a house that belongs to the Tutu Leadership Center and renting it out despite losing a court case. It's an extraordinary story. And one you've got to listen to. Uh, but before we get to all of those, we're going to first pick up on the market. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Justin Rowe Roberts is our man watching the market. It's been quite a day, hasn't it, Justin? Quite a show coming up. Uh, but let's start off with uh, your area of expertise, the place you watch. How have the market's been? The JSE All Share Index was slightly lower today at 66,300. In the currency markets, the rand was strong against all the major currencies, 40 rand 24 cents to the dollar, 19 rand 69 cents to the pound, and 16 rand 90 cents to the euro. Gold is low at $1,756 an ounce. A Kruger Rand is trading at approximately the 26,000 Rand mark. Brent crude is stable at $75.50 a barrel. This is an extremely interesting story. Given the concerns of the Delta variant, Brent crude holding strong. Uh, normally, Brent's one of the first ones to come off um, w- when uh, these kind of variants come to light. It stayed resilient, very good for Sassel, very good for MTN. And Bitcoin has seen some weakness, trading at just below the 500k level. We've seen the KG brothers that have come out. They've said that it's not billions missing, it's rather millions. Still big numbers for 18 and 21-year-old KG brothers, respectively. If I go have a look at the price action on the JSE today, a mixed bag, some retail therapy, some financials. Uh, if I look at the losers, Encore, the miners, and some of the big uh, offshore heavyweights, British American Tobacco, and lastly, Remgro coming out with a trading statement. Better than the prior comparison period, but remember that was COVID. Market didn't like the numbers, 1.5% down for the day. You mentioned the Kajis. These are South Africans who ran a cryptocurrency exchange and allegedly had taken 50 billion rand, but it seems like the lawyer might have got his numbers badly wrong. The story is up on Biz News. Fascinating insights from the Wall Street Journal. They interviewed both KG brothers. Both of them are out the country. They've fleed the country as a result of death threats. Uh, they had some high-standing profile clients, uh, some apparently dodgy, they call. Um, they do think their lives are at threat. The number of 50 billion rand is way off the mark. This is a 18 and 21-year-old brothers. This is staggering numbers for uh, people at this tender age. And whose money is it? It's supposedly high net worth South African individuals um, and including celebrities. No names have been mentioned, um, but a lot of the clients that they were working for have gone to lawyers, but I think the numbers have been taken out of proportion. We are talking millions here. We're not talking billions. On the KG Brothers' mouth, we're talking 70 million rand mark, the $5 million mark around, around there. This market report was made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, time now for our flash briefing. Where is former President Jacob Zuma, who has been sentenced to 15 months in jail for contempt of court? His family members have issued contradictory statements, some saying he is at his homestead in Kandla, others that he is in Zambia after the funeral of former President Kenneth Kaunda. Umkonto Wesizwe Military Veterans Association's spokesperson Carl Niehaus says Zuma supporters will form a human chain around Zuma. The former president has been ordered to present himself to law enforcement authorities within five days to begin his jail term for refusing to testify at the Zondo Commission of Inquiry into State Capture. 
If Zuma fails to turn himself in by Sunday, police will be ordered to arrest him and take him to prison. Mzwaneli Manye, Zuma's spokesperson, is quoted by Agence France Presse as saying that Zuma is in high spirits, bouncing like a tennis ball. If it was me, says Manye, I would have lost appetite. He has not lost appetite. Zuma, aged 79, is accused of enabling the plunder of state coffers during his nine years in office, which ended in February 2018. South African Breweries is heading to court to have the fourth liquor ban overturned, saying the use of blanket bans to combat COVID-19 is unsustainable and will exacerbate job losses and economic decline. Three previous bans, which have lasted not far off a combined five months, have cost the industry as much as 38 billion rand in sales. South Africa is moving with more urgency to introduce regulations to control the cryptocurrency market after a proliferation of scams. A new regulatory timeline is expected to be finalized before the end of the year. The approach that's taking shape means tougher rules could be imminent this year after a jolt of scandals that most recently included a suspected Ponzi scheme which resulted in the disappearance of an estimated $3.6 billion in Bitcoin. And that was your BizNews Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. For more on those and the other big stories of the day, visit biznewsradio.com. Top story of the moment on BizNews. By some distance, uh, Magnus Haystick's addressing the property slump in South Africa. The tri- I mean, y- you really do know the headlines, Magnus. The trillion rand property collapse. Wow. Those are big numbers. And if, when you talk about uh, property or residential property being the middle class's biggest asset, it shows you how people's uh, financial affairs have gone backwards. Yes, good afternoon, Alec. Indeed, unfortunately, as I tweeted to people, I said, if you don't, if you want to spoil your day, don't read my article on business. Because unfortunately, it affects us all. And you, you can't deny it, you can't spin it. And, and you know, I've been, I've been writing about this and talking about the slow destruction of property values for a very long time. But when you have a guy like Neil Gopal, who's the chairman of the, of SAPOA, which is the South African Property owners association representing 600 big commercial property owners countrywide coming out and 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 saying forcefully that this this policy of catered developments handing the keys to the uh, to the vault to uneducated uh, people you you're creating a disaster the disaster is that over the last 10 to 15 years property rates and taxes have spiraled out of control, and we know that, but twice, even three times the inflation rate. And it is now destroying property values from the smallest property to the largest place like Santon City. And people tend to avoid these things, but if you sit back and you realize if you put a value or the value destruction to every South African, whether it's listed, unlisted, private owner or whatever, there's a lot of capital that's just evaporated, Alec. It's just gone. I mean, you and I have a bit of a background in the financial world. We can do some numbers. But I think the, the average man in the street doesn't realize what's happened. I mean, in his pension fund, there's 5% that's been downgraded to 1% in terms of relative value. If I can use Santon City and Eastgate as an example, those buildings and many more of, the, of those kind were financed and by policyholders from Donny Gordon. And for decades, it was a superb investment. You would get your dividends every year. It will go up in value after inflation. And if you look at the destruction that took place in, in Santon City, the building is still there. Same building, same quality. But the value has been downwritten by 50%. It's very hard to believe. Wow, 50%. Uh, well, you look Is at that, the mm-hmm. yeah. It's, it's if you look at the statements from Liberty Life Property yeah. Fund, that's down fifty percent, and the decline happened even before the COVID. It happened twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, and then just tumbled. So there's been a slight upturn, but it's still worth less, about forty five percent at the peak of the value. And that you take you, you take a property fund like Accelerate, which owns the four is mall around my corner. Which is declined by ninety percent. It's 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 a penny stock, but the buildings are there. And part of the problem is, of course, the chaos as you leave the shopping centre, the rates and taxes, the roads, the rubbish. 
And that's how these things impact on the valuation of a very large asset class in South Africa. And you, we now suddenly talk about Lichtenberg, but Lichtenberg's been coming for a long, long time. There are yeah, many the other Lichtenbergs. even worse. Eh? They've been coming but, for a long time. And Clover had to report to the public that they're closing because it's a listed company. But there are 10, 15 Clovers in Lichtenberg. And the same with Christiana, Womeranstadt, Kimberley looks like a... We don't... It's not reported, so it doesn't happen. But if you drive around those towns, which I often do, you're just astonished at what's happening. And most of the provinces in South Africa, with the exception of the of the of, of the Western Cape, you've just had a humongous write-off of capital, and it's affecting people. I speak to many, many people. It's my job to talk to people, and I tell you, my my, my property portfolio is costing me money. I have to pay rates and taxes. I have to pay maintenance. And the income has evaporated, so you're just becoming poorer. And hopefully it turns around, but we, we just don't see it yet. Just to start off in the rural areas, often people who have built wealth would build shopping centers or build little little office blocks or something in those rural towns. I presume a lot of those people would be your clients who are now uh, looking at their retirement and so on. Are they able to offload those properties even at lower prices? They're finding it harder and harder to offload. I mean, five years ago, eight years ago, they could still get prices because you're quite right what happened that the more affluent part of a small town. But if they have spare cash, they would perhaps, after they've bought the new tractors and the new Mercs, they would build a little shopping center, office block. And you see them in all the small small towns. They all were built 30, 40 years ago. But today you, you find most of them are empty or a lot of them are empty. And if they still occupied the rates that people collect from these buildings are um, incredibly low, barely covering the cost of the rates and taxes, and there's no maintenance taking place. So when they do their audits at the end of the year, they write down these buildings by 20 to 30% year after year after year, and people will admit it to you. And that's, that, that applies to whether it's warm bars or, or, or pots of trim. They will tell you, my property values are down 50 to 60%. And it's a drag on my my entire portfolio, and I cannot sell it. I can't. I can't give it away. So that's that's in the investment side. But what about middle class South Africa, for most of whom their homes are their biggest investment? Have that. Well, first of all, you, you know, address that in your in your in your uh, article. I do. I mean, the, the the downward trend in the residential property market as a whole is well noted. Anybody will tell you. Property values have not risen in, in line with inflation for 13 years now. And in fact, in real terms, average homes have declined by something like 23, 24%. If you take the, the stats from FNB, the property barometer, the lower end of the market in the last year or two has done substanti substantially better in terms of volumes, but not price increases. And the volumes have accelerated because of the lower interest rates that have been at 35-year lows. So people rushed out, gave up their rental properties, and started buying, which is fairly normal. But for the rest of the market, the middle income class or the upper class, whichever category you look at, um, property values, where they take place, which is very interesting, have dropped by between um, 20 to 40%. I mean, Cape Town, for example... I track these things on using various methods, and I also own property in, in, in Cape Town. And I can tell you now that even on the Atlantic seaboard, where developers were selling new developments for up to 80,000 rand a square meter, those prices have come down to 50, maybe 40, and they are burning. And I, I see daily uh, adverts, um, reduced price, 200,000 rand discount, and these are new developments. So, And there's this glut of property on the market, which is going to take many, many years before it's, it's worked through the system. So to answer your question, yes, uh, your property is, 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 some people like to call it an investment. Others would say it's your largest debt that you ever take on. And But it, it's been a bit of a mortal blow in many cases to people I spoke to a colleague of mine this morning, and he owns several properties, and we, we started speaking about property. And he was saying that a lot of people's movements, for instance, retirement plans have been scuppered by the fact that 
people 10, 20 years ago said, well, I'm going to sell my big mansion in Hudson or in Danfin, and I'll move to the coast to buy a smaller place. Well, guess what? The smaller place at the coast is now cost more than the, 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 the big mansion because nobody wants to buy these big mansions anymore because it, it, it comes along with the, the added maintenance and rates and taxes. And the rates and taxes issue is slowly destroying the fabric of South African society from the, from the bottom upwards, if one takes a philosophical approach to this, to this uh, issue. Rates and taxes are interesting because that's the local authority or the metropole uh, where the incompetence and the cater deployment that you mentioned right at the outset has meant that the costs just continue to rise, whereas uh, there's the, the place that you get the money from uh, when you do uh, need to raise revenue is your, uh, your ratepayers. So what do ratepayers do in a case like that if you get this ever-increasing rise in costs and no real improvement in the facilities? Well, you, you'll see over the last couple of years, several ratepayers associations have gone to court. I mean, you had the you had um, Dunn and Harry Smith. There have been legal battles for, for years. There have been legal battles in Kestel and that, where they've taken over the water and sewerage. That's going to that's going to increase because rates and payers have found that dealing with the with the councils is not given them any any uh, outcome or positive outcome. If you look at the statements by Clover where they said that for five years they had negotiations with the municipality of Lichtenberg and absolutely nothing happened. So the day that they pull out, remember Clover is now an, an, an Israeli-controlled company. I mean, I think they just came to a point and said, cut and run. We can't carry on like this. Then suddenly the mayor was up in arms and doing interviews and saying, you know, it's too soon, they should talk to us. And the guys turned around and said, we've been talking to you for five years. You don't, you don't re respond to our calls. You don't respond to our emails. You just don't do anything. And, you know, just to summarize it, like J.P. Lundman, who's well known for his positive outlook on South Africa, he wrote a week ago on this issue, and I quoted in the article, he simply says, it's a mess. And in, in, in South Africa, and he basically says, due to the way the constitution was drawn up and you have uh, independent councillors or Sunday, and as a result of catering employment, people have been put into places where they control the finances across the country and there's absolutely no control over them. You just look at the latest uh, report by the Auditor General on the state of municipalities. It is just unbelievable, the looting and the theft that's what's been going on, and we're all paying the price, and, and the ANC will need to address this issue. It's almost a bigger issue than, than the whole Eskom issue, because if you quantify it, it's more than the $500 billion that Eskom owes. This is a big, much bigger number, because it's destroying very large parts of our economy. Like, for instance, Peter Bruce, your erstwhile colleague, wrote in his column this week, he talks about uh, an incapable state that even breaks the rusks. Now, the story is that a town like Moltano in the Cape, where the Omas rate rusks are manufactured, the things you dip in your tea every morning, Alec. My favorite. Buttermilk, best in the world. Ab absolutely. <laughs> I agree with you. Yeah, we agree on something. But Omas, he even says, yeah, yeah, the best. Though, eh? yeah. <laughs> So they're even thinking of closing down because the roads from Moltano to a, a highway close by is so bad that the trucks are shaking so badly that the rusks are breaking, and that's hence the headline, that even the rusks are breaking. So now you have the situation. Moltena, the largest employer, I beg your pardon, Omar is the largest employer in, in, in Moltena. They might pull the plug, and, and, and this is happening all over the country. And when the COVID virus hopefully is over quite soon, this is probably one of the biggest issues that that Cyril Ramaphosa will have to address. How do you rein in those mayors and councillors who are absolutely just spending this money, uh, other people's money, without any restraint or regard to what the outcomes will be? Well, we've got an election coming up in October. Uh, certainly Herman Mashaba says he's going to win a big chunk of the country. Uh, most people look at him as though he's crazy. He's just uh, talking in a vacuum. But as a rational thinking citizen, 
do we all just pack up from other parts of the country and move to the one area or the one province which is properly governed in the Western Cape? Well, that's already been happening for a long time, and that is continuing to happen. And, and if you look at the FMB stats, they break down the reason for sales of property in a certain region. And selling to immigrate is, is still high, but selling to move to another part of the country is extremely high. I think it's 20 25%. If I look at my area where I'm living, um, four or five of my immediate neighbors have all left the last four or five years. And they've all gone to one place. They've all gone to the Western Cape. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a major, major trend. So the Western Cape, to, to a large extent, is still protecting values. I mean, Baldivy and, 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 and George and, and the Cape. But um, the, the rest of the country, it is, a, it is quite a catastrophe for people because that asset that they thought they had has gone. It has evaporated, and and it costs money. I refer in the article to a little piece of stand I bought unwisely 10 years ago, which has cost me 2 million rand over time. I cannot give it away, but I need to pay the rates and taxes every month or I get a lawyer's letter. Now, that is amplified across the country, in my view, at a much rate, larger rate than we, than we um, discuss. So what are your clients doing about this? And indeed, what are you advising them just to cut and run or perhaps look at the, uh, this as some opportunity because if prices are that low, at some point in time, you would hope that sanity would prevail in the governance. Well, if you want to make an investment based on hope, then you do that. And you buy property and you hope it'll turn around and then it'll be a great investment over time. If the councils can be reined in with their spending or government steps in and says no more, your costs will only increase in line with inflation because the people paying those rates and taxes, their salaries and incomes have not kept pace with inflation. This must stop. So if you if you believe that, and I could be 100% wrong, but I wouldn't place too much faith in that kind of uh, scenario evolving over the next couple of years. So, and, and then based on your question, what do I tell people? If you are overweight property, put some of them on the market and don't wait for the upturn as everybody seems to get some cash, get some liquidity into your portfolio because what the COVID pandemic has, has illustrated, you know, the fund managers love to call cash is trash. Well, let me tell you, Alec, the cash has been a fantastic investment for the last five years, beating most equity funds in South Africa, if not all of them. And um, it, it's, it's immediately available to you. You've been getting 6 to 8% on your money with no risk, with no uh, additional friction costs. So cash is still very nice. I disagree with these fund managers who like to beat the drum of cash is trash. Just do the five-year numbers. Cash has handsomely beaten the local equity market. Our Thursday evening um, person who does what you do on a Wednesday evening for the Business Power Hour, Pit Fulion, uh, he wrote recently that you shouldn't be investing in residential property or certainly the house that you live in. Are you aligned with that thinking? Indeed, I am. I, I, and I, I know that's Pete's view and it's been his view for a long time. And I look at my own experience where I made the same mistakes trying to build a property portfolio and become this fantastic landlord and collecting rental. Well, that has simply not happened. And that's why I started writing about this issue five, six years ago, where I saw my personal uh, portfolio, my rents are going down, but my rates and taxes are rising. It, if that continues, it turns out to a disaster. And fortunately, I started selling. But my lovely, lovely German wife, who likes bricks and mortars, has got two or three little properties that she has. And every time I tell her, darling, sell, she says, no, but it's a good investment. I say, well, let's, let's sit down and do the numbers. And then she sits back and she says, yeah, you're right. And, but she says, I can't sell it. I, I like my emotion. question. I said, yeah, it's emotion. It's, it's, emotion. It? It's, 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 it's a, humans have this attachment to a property, no question about it. And then I say, look, if, you, if it's about emotion, I, I'm not going to win this battle. But if it's about rands and cents and returns and liquidity and diversification, it's simply not a good investment, especially in, in, in the scenario that I've just sketched where, where 
things that you can't control, like your rates and taxes, is, is just running away. And, and, and Neil Gopal from Sapawa says that. He says you're crazy to buy property. And I think he's using this statements on, on in the media to try and alert the government to to this to this problem, which could become even greater problem. Is that's what those were his words, not mine. Paul Hoffman is a director of accountability now. Paul, we've been talking a lot about Jacob Zuma over the past decade. Earlier this week, he got his marching orders to go to jail. It's not quite that simple, though, is it? No, I think that uh, although it was a big day for accountability and uh, everybody is rather pleased that the uh, majority in the Constitutional Court stood up to be counted, um, get, getting uh, Jacob Zuma into the jail is is another matter altogether. His daughter is saying that he, he, he would prefer to be incarcerated near in Kandla and that they will all go to the uh, escort prison with him, whereas his son Edward is saying, over my dead body, literally. <laughs> so it's very difficult to, uh, to get any sense out of that. And uh, it remains to be seen whether the ANC will be able to muster the necessary political will to get the commissioner of police to act, actually intervene and arrest him if he does not present himself at the Nkandla police station, as his daughter says he will. At the moment, part of society here in South Africa is saying, well, it's a done deal, he's going to, he's going to jail. But uh, from what you've outlined, and certainly the statements made by two of his 23 children, uh, this is not exactly a done deal, well, certainly not in their views. No, it's, it's, well, they're giving contradictory messages, which uh, d- doesn't make it any easier. But, uh, you know, Jacob Zuma has been a great one for playing the victim card. And if he is advised that because he is a nonviolent uh, offender who's been given a sentence of less than two years, that he will be out after he serves a quarter of his sentence, provided he behaves himself and is a good prisoner, well, then he may uh, decide that there's politically more mileage to be made by becoming the victim of the system to such an extent that he spends a couple of months in jail if if, if he uh, is so advised. I'm not sure what the legal position is in relation to whether the administrative release provisions that were put in place back in the noughties uh, to to cope with overcrowding. Remember back then everybody was getting uh, arrested and convicted for possession of a dachazor and uh, clutching up the the prisons with short terms of incarceration. So it, it was decided and the law was adjusted that to take the pressure off the overcrowding in the prisons and the pressure off the parole boards who are having to deal with requests for parole from many, many people, that you could get administrative parole after a quarter of your sentence has been served. And uh, that may be an option that appeals to, to Zuma. Whether administrative parole actually applies to a person who has not been convicted uh, in, in, in a criminal court pursuant to the provisions of the uh, Criminal Procedure Act, but has been convicted in a civil court pursuant to the crime of contempt of that court is a delicate question to which the answer is I don't know at this stage. Okay, so... It's almost like it's been described uh, to us like the Al Capone, well, game of chess there, but like the Al Capone factor. Here's a chap who's uh, promoted or sponsored the state capture for the best part of a decade. It has Mm -hmm. denuded South Africa of much of its resources. And going back before then, we even had the arms deal as well, of which he's uh, one of the central characters. Well, no, I think he was a bit player in the arms deal. He, he, He was basically getting protection money from one of the successful subcontractors after the deal was done. The people who got the big bribes there were were on the um, uh, 
arms procurement committee, and he wasn't one of those. All right. So arms on one side, but certainly the Guptas, he was a central character. No, no doubt about that. <laughs> Is it likely then that if he does arrive at the Encantler jail or wherever it is that he's going to be incarcerated and he spends his minimum of three or four months that during this period the National Prosecuting Authority can put a case together which would extend that sentence possibly for the rest of his life? No, I don't think the National Prosecuting Authority has the will or the skill to do it. Um, Accountability now laid charges against Jacob Zuma in 2013, relating to the shenanigans around the financing of his home improvements at Inkondla. Um, That was followed by the EFF and the DA in 2014. All three complainants are still being told that the matter is under investigation. That's 2013 I'm talking about. In 2015, he managed to bribe the National Director of Public Prosecutions not to do his job, but rather to take the money and leave. That was Mr. Ntasana. And that is a criminal offense. He's, he's paying a prosecutor to do or not to do his job. And a, a, a formal criminal complaint was laid in 2015. And we understand that the matter is still under investigation. So we, <laughs> to, to, to imagine that something dramatic can happen in three months when three years, or, uh, well, in the case of the Inkandla matter since 2013, it's, it's nearly a decade. It's not going to happen. It's not, it's not the way the NPA operates. Paul, in Brazil, they had – Quite a few parallels to what we're seeing in South Africa with the Operation Car Wash. But there, the former president, Lula da Silva, was sentenced to 12 years in jail. So if they can get it right, what's going, what are we doing wrong? No, uh, uh, the the, uh, charges in relation to decapitating the NPA would would carry a, a sentence of 15 years if only the NPA would, would put, put its, uh, itself in gear and uh, react to the complaint that we made back in 2015. The charges relating to um, Inkondla involve theft and fraud and in, you know, really diverting money that was meant for poverty alleviation into improving uh, the uh, uh, the the uh, compound at at, at Inkandla, they're also um, far more serious than 15 months for contempt of court um, uh, uh, crimes are in evidence. And of course, the the uh, the uh, uh, matter that Billy Downer has been working on since he got got it right with Shabir Sheikh in 2005 um, is is one where the uh, the minimum sentence is 15 years. So. Um, That one is in court on the 19th of July. So a good portion of the sentence that uh, Jacob Zuma received yesterday will be spent sitting in the in the court. Um, He he will be uh, treated as a uh, a convicted prisoner who's been brought to court on a uh, a a subsequent matter that has has not been finalised. He he won't spend his time in the uh, in the escort prison near Encanta, he'll spend his time in the Peter Maritzburg uh, uh, prison where it's convenient to get him from the prison to the court each day. Paul, we hear stories of uh, certain prisoners being treated a lot better than others. You recall Greg Blank when he went to jail years ago having a television set and apparently a relative luxury. Is that likely to happen with Jacob Zuma? Oh, yes, you can be quite sure that he won't be treated as an average prisoner. And uh, you know, they won't even have to shave his head when they bring him in because it's not necessary. But it'll be an inconvenience then, in other words. And I suppose yeah, yeah. It, it affects a reputation which uh, presumably um, can't really go much lower in the perception of South African public. Well, you know, he's, he's managed to, to fool most of the people most of the time. Uh, since the, uh, the, the his his firing by Mbeki, 
You'll recall that after um, Sheikh was found guilty of corruption, Mbeki fired him as deputy president of South Africa, but the ANC declined to remove him as the deputy president of the ANC. And from that lofty perch, he was able to turn himself into the supposedly democratically elected president of South Africa via the capture of the ANC. He captured enough branches, um, however it was done, and uh, got a landslide at Polokwane. And no, nobody woke up in time for Mongaung uh, five years later. And uh, so he was sworn in as the supposedly democratically elected president of South Africa on two occasions. And when he took his oath of office, he swore to uphold the Constitution and the rule of law. And he has done neither all the way. I mean, he's openly says that he would he would love to be the dictator for six months in fix South Africa. And he thinks that the majority has more rights than the minority in a, in, in a democracy. He had, he had that conversation with Lindiwe Mazibuko in Parliament on the record. So really, he, he has been exceedingly bad news, and it makes you wonder about the uh, efficacy of the political system in South Africa if a person with his uh, track record and pedigree, and I'm not even going to to his uh, version of the rape case, uh, manages to get elected not once but twice. So Ellen Zima Vavi calls it the greatest disaster ever to befall South Africa. <laughs> I think he may be right. Chuck Stevens has written for Biz News for quite some time. Uh, Chuck, I do, however, think that your latest contribution, the one that you sent through today, uh, caught us all by surprise. I had no idea you spent time in jail uh, over the past weekend, and it's quite a story. Let's just go back, though. Those who don't know uh, you, the Desmond okay, Tutu yeah. Leadership Foundation. Okay, Where does it's a uh, South African registered uh, charity or nonprofit organization. It was registered over 20 years ago. The focus has been on youth development or youth empowerment. I came to South Africa just after the elections in 1994. I hadn't wanted to live here uh, before that, uh, but I had stayed in Zimbabwe and Mozambique and in Angola in what used to be called the frontline states previously. Um, we saw the opportunity here to help grow democracy and, and particularly uh, what's called civil society or nonprofit organizations. And so we decided to move here and uh, set up the small NGO to do that. It has come with other issues, though, and uh, one of those which landed you in jail over the weekend. Tell us the story. Well, we've had an ongoing dispute um, over one of the houses on our campus, which was rented out. And... About five years ago, when the tenant left, she refused to return the keys to the house, and then she started renting it out, subletting it, and uh, she claimed that, that she owned the house, and we disputed that and said, obviously, look, we have the papers for owning the house. You, you can't you have two people owning it. And so she uh, started a civil case, and we said, fine, we'll answer and we did but this has dragged on for about five years uh, sub judice uh, waiting and waiting but what we found that they did over this five-year period was that they used the delays in bringing the mother case to court to introduce all sorts of other uh, har harassment if I can call it that 2021, February, we finally got the, the case to trial. And uh, on, on April 21st, the, the, the magistrate found uh, in our favor that the house belongs to us and that, um, you know, uh, she's got no legal claim to, to have the house. 
The, the problem is that she doesn't want to give the house up now. So <laughs> now it's been, you know, a case of having to give her time in, if she wants to appeal. I, I believe she's allowed 21 or 30 days to appeal. That's passed and she hasn't appealed. And <laughs> out of the blue, on Friday afternoon, uh, the police arrived at my home and arrested me, uh, ostensibly for, again, one of these um, small issues, which um, I, I really shouldn't get into because that case is now subjudicated. It's going to be heard next week. But, you know, they have a, a sort of fri uh, Friday special <laughs> that if they arrest you late enough on a Friday afternoon, you know, you're supposed to uh, be heard by a court within 48 hours, uh, according to the law in South Africa. But, of course, on a weekend, that would run on to a Sunday, and so the courts are closed. So, in fact, you can't be seen by the magistrate until Monday. So I was held three nights um, in, in jail uh, here in town. Um, and, unfortunately, it was uh, very full. Uh, there were 18 men uh, in the jail. It's a small, and you know, I'm 70 years old, and there was a lot of health concerns uh, surrounding this uh, in terms of um, exposure to COVID or, you know, uh, something like that. Now, I've ended up with a bit of a cough. I don't think that's COVID. That, that's just from, from, you know, the very coldest time of year. But, you know, when I sent uh, a new newsletter out about this. One of my friends from Zimbabwe wrote to me and he said, Chuck, um, 20 years ago, he said, my dad, who was farming at Turk Mine, which is in Marabili land, he said he used to have a house in town and then go out to the farm in the day. He, one day he was called by the police to come to his farm and the police arrested him when he got to his farm and charged him with trespassing <laughs> on his own on his own farm. And all I can say is that, you know, this thing is, what is, is exactly as irrational as that story from Zimbabwe. And I was sort of at a distance watching what happened in Zimbabwe some time ago. But, you know, land has become, uh, I don't know what to call it. It's just, a, a you know, a huge issue, a symbolic issue, I guess, is the way to, to put it. And it, it seems that, what you know, the rule of law is not, not happening. In fact, the, the courts, as far as I can see it, tend to sympathize uh, with people not based on the merits of the case, but based on their skin color. Um, that's very frank words. But, you know, I took a hiding over the weekend for uh, this, and uh, I will be back in court next week to defend the issues, I shouldn't talk about the exact issues because it's subjudicated right this week, as I said, but I'm quite confident that it will be dismissed. And it's about the, I can't remember the, maybe the 10th or 12th case that these people have, you know, brought against us in different kinds of complaints or, you know, and it, to us, it's just harassment. But the issue is, you know, they see it as their land, and I'm a foreigner, and, you know, what am I doing here? <laughs> they see foreigners, they see, uh, I think they thought that I would be scared away, or, or that, you know, that I could be intimidated or bullied and, until, basically, they, they just would be able to stay in the house. But, you know, we have the title to the house, we, we purchased the house in 2001, it's, it, there's four houses, in fact, on the property. And so in terms of the rule of law, it's very clear. And although they were able to obstruct and delay getting the trial to, to court until this year, it's now been in court and we won. And, and they even awarded us costs and said, you know, she should pay our costs for, for this long wait and all the legal work to do it. But whether we'll ever get anything, I, I rather doubt it. Who is they? Who are these people? You know, it's I've I've thought about this so much and and for such a long time that I'll just distill it for you. Um, I think what's happening in South Africa is 
and it's it's what it's what's happened to us and that is the, the sort of emergence of what what you can call criminal syndicates there's a number of people uh probably four or five operating together uh to try and uh take resources and take assets from our company uh, from our ngo uh they're they've got their own reasons for that i'm not um sure that i even understand what they are but i believe they're operating that way and the problem is that when you go to the police or or when you go even to the magistrate and say um you know we're being intimidated we're being bullied and we're trying to um you know be fair be patient uh, and do things through the structures and not take you know the law into our own hands and and there's there's what i call implicit bias you know the 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 system uh defends the majority uh and and the minority of people you're white um i'm also white but i'm a foreigner and i'm quite a bit older so you know i look at the ways uh that you know many of these things can be defined as discrimination against someone who's old someone who's who's uh, a foreigner maquarequeri they say you know um who comes from wherever and lands and spends some time and then goes back i mean that's i think it's a bird the maquarequeri is the is the idea of uh, migrating birds but that's what we're called and so i i think that um the law is not strong enough to stand up to these syndicates and in fact uh what i believe happened um i strongly suspect that the police colluded with uh one of these people on friday last week to arrest me so that i would be spending three nights in jail on one of these weekend specials <laughs> not able to go before a magistrate until monday and they must have known that there were already 15 people in the cell because when i got in there i found that uh most of them were mozambicans and they'd been there for over a month i believe that i was singled out as a target and put in harm's way and that's what's called hiv endangerment or covid endangerment um you put them in harm's way and that according to the law that's a crime Chuck, just two things here how big was the cell and what did the what did they arrest you on what was the charge while well, it's subjudicate uh that i should talk about that but i'll tell you that i refused to sign the charge sheet because i told them that's not true i did not do that and so you know um I will argue and um look I've, I've been here before several times they got me up this? in court uh, and it's my third time to to spend time in the jail in White River in the past 4 years um I'd never spent the whole long weekend before because we are always able to get in touch with a lawyer quickly but you know on Friday afternoons where do you find a lawyer they shouldn't put a 70 year old yeah. man into danger like that that and that's got nothing to do with the charge or the charge sheet where you were held the, over those 3 nights how big was the is the holding cell yeah. or the oh, cell that, that you were that's the amazing thing it's like 4 meters by 8 meters is is where you sleep now there is a um a bigger area that's open in the daytime with a little bit of sunshine coming in where you can get some exercise and there's a shower there to wash and stuff but at night about 7 at night they lock you into this 4 meter by 8 meter lockup and we were 18 people in there now another thing that i couldn't figure out here uh four of us were whites okay i was the only white foreigner the other three uh, were white south africans and the other uh 14 uh 13 were uh mozambicans So here we are we were all either foreigners or whites not one black south african 
You know, and I'm looking at that and saying to myself, how is that possible given our demography? And, you know, how how is it that they only arrest whites and Mozambicans? You know, something is not right there. Um, the Mozambicans have been held for over a month. Uh, several of them, as I said, were quite sick. The taxpayers paying to keep these guys in jail. They may be COVID positive. It's survivable. Um, but for somebody my age, it's not. And, you know, I think that's quite well known. Uh, the police should know that. And, and the person from the premier's office who who was the one who, who, who opened the case against me, um, he uh, has been an essential worker. So he's been on a level 10 salary, you know, right through the COVID, hasn't missed the paycheck. They haven't paid rent in the house for five years and, and, you know, kept the keys. So we're, you know, suffering from deprivation, as we, we told the court. And the court agreed and said, you know, this house belongs to the NGO. It should be returned. Um, I think the, 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 the problem is uh, visceral, so deep that I think, even the lawyers and the other people involved are just handling it with kid gloves because they know what the law says and they know what's written in the order, you know, from the court, but they know that people will kill for land. So, you know, you have to, you have to be careful. I'm Lilith van Tolberg for Bez News. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused historic disruption to international mobility, and it has prompted many companies to re-evaluate how they will manage a mobile workforce after the pandemic, or if they should have stints overseas, now that virtual work has become the norm for many companies. A new list of the world's most expensive cities could help companies decide. And here is a surprise. It's not the usual suspects that top the list, but Ashgabat in Turkmenistan, that is the world's most expensive city. And if you, like I, wondered what the attraction is of Ashgabat, it is described as a deserted white marble city with gold statues and manicured gardens. It's on the old Silk Road and it has vast natural oil and gas reserves. Business spoke to Vladimir Vereshovsky from Mercer, the company that published the 2021 cost of living survey, to find out the reason for Ashgabat's top position and where South African cities ranked on the list. So Ashgabat and Beirut would be actually outliers on this list. Uh, mostly because of how they report their uh, official currency exchange. They have an official currency exchange, they have a black market exchange, and we only take the official one. So actually, if we go down on the actual list of most expensive cities, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Zurich, Shanghai, Singapore, Geneva would actually remain the most expensive. If we look across the board, what we've really noticed is that mostly because how we actually run this methodology, which is technically uh, we calculate everything in US dollars, the major changes across markets or in the ranking happen because of how currencies perform versus the U.S. dollars. If the currency performs better than the U.S. dollars, those locations would become typically more expensive. Some may have become cheaper, whether that impacted the dollar or actually performed worse than the dollar as well. Have you had a look at South African cities? Where are they on that list? Probably first we need to sort of set the, the baseline about the methodology, right? How do we do this and how do we calculate it? Okay, um, how do you do it? How yeah, do you calculate it? Exactly. So that will provide you more context of why South Africa is where South Africa is. So we collect prices for about 200 plus items every six months. And we publish those items within a month from when we collect the prices. So our collection is done every March or September, where we have agents go out and we have a list of products and we specifically target product which would be consumed by the expatriates. So if we look at two different products, and one of them is an international famous brand, and one is a local brand, we'll take the price of the international brand because that's a mostly recognized brand, right? So what we do is that we take at least three markets, three supermarkets, uh, let's say from each city, we look at those prices, and then we average those prices to come up with an average price per market. Then that's all being done in local currency. Then we convert everything in U.S. dollars, 
And then we compare them market by market to come up with the rank. So the South African cities, there is also one more important aspect, which is accommodation. As you can imagine, accommodation takes a huge portion, huge chunk of our consumer basket. And when we look at accommodation, we purely look at accommodation appropriate for expatriates. That means that we look at areas which are safe, secure, low crime, access to public transport, probably near international schools, famous for the expatriate community, et cetera, et cetera. That being said, we are very selective to which areas we, we actually take and uh, recommend to our clients when they actually send expatriates abroad and which areas we, we recommend for living. And those are the areas that actually we take into consideration when it comes to our cost of living ranking. So that's why... When we look at South African cities, we've seen a bit of movement, but they're still sort of at the bottom of the list, which is great. It means they're cheaper in general. However, uh, we've seen that they have jumped. I think that most of them jumped nine or 10 places up. And I'm going to attribute that to probably two main factors. Factor number one is that the rent actually performed a lot better than we expected in the past year, right? Versus the US dollar. And the second part is that there has been an inflation in, in South Africa as per our survey to about two and a half to three percent. However, probably your CPI in South Africa says slightly higher than that. However, our basket is more focused on expatriate. So the weights are slightly different from your typical CPI. That being said, South African cities are still probably one of the cheapest ones out there. However, they got more expensive on this ranking, mostly because of this performance of rent and inflation at the same time. Where is Cape Town and, say, Johannesburg on that list? Right. So we're looking at Johannesburg moving from the 192nd to 184th place. And Cape Town from 187 to 178. So actually, both cities jumped eight and nine spots up, respectively. Which other cities can compare with Johannesburg and Cape Town? Interestingly, if we look at Africa in particular, I can see here that Port Louis in Mauritius is around that. I can see Kampala in Uganda, Victoria, Seychelles. They would be sort of in the similar ranking positions. The bottom of this is 210 locations, right? And Lusaka being the cheapest one actually in the world. However, South Africa cities are quite cheap compared to a lot of different locations around the world. Are there any Western cities on that level on the list? Uh, no, they are not. Most of the Western cities, if you look at Western Europe, US, they would be typically on the top of the list. The cities that are traditionally on that list, the Zurichs, I mean, I've been to Zurich. It is so expensive. You feel robbed if you buy a sandwich. And Tokyo, Hong Kong, they still the, actually the most expensive cities in the world. Yeah. Ultimately, what we're looking at with this ranking is understand and help companies pretty much understand how they can mobilize talent. It's all about talent with us. Since we are HR consulting company, typically we look at multiple aspects of how a location can be attractive for talent, whether that be companies bringing in talent or companies sending out talent from a multinational perspective. So typically we'd like to consider that the cities which are cheaper on the list, and at the same time, we can even say that they offer relatively good quality of life, they're safe, et cetera, they would be uh, attractive for, for multinationals to bring talent in because it's getting cheaper for them at the same time. There are not major fluctuations in currencies, etc. So it's quite stable. And stability is what multinationals love. When it comes to sending talent out, at the same time, dropping down on the list, it means that companies actually need to spend more money to compensate for the cost of living differences when they send someone to a more expensive location. So it does get actually more expensive for, particularly if we take, South African multinationals, they would like to send some of their employees abroad. They actually need to pay a bit more because of how cheap South Africa would be compared to different cities. So if we look at this kind of like two-way movement of talent, it's probably a good position to be in, being cheap, being able to attract the right talent. And at the same time, it could pose a challenge for South African multinationals when they're looking to compensate for that difference when they're sending talent outside. Thanks for being with us from me, Alec Hogg, and our team here at Biz News. We look forward to being back in your company, same time, same place, tomorrow. If you missed part of the show and would like to catch up on all of it, do remember that we do rebroadcast on biznewsradio.com. That's a live streaming service uh, at 7 in the morning, 7 in the evening, and 5.30 in the afternoon. Also, you can pick up the recordings 
on Spotify and iTunes by going to Biz News Radio. And uh, that'll give you everything you, you need. Until tomorrow, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.